Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com slash consulting. IBM, let's create. This is this extraordinary opportunity to experience solitude. And I keep hearing people say this is really hard psychologically on people. Humans are social animals. We're meant to be together. And that's inarguably true, but that's not the only thing we are. We're also spiritual animals. And every spiritual tradition in the history of the world advises at some point or another going and being alone for a long period of time and being in retreat and being in stillness and being in isolation. But if you're asking me how I'm experiencing it, this is a country I've never been to. And I don't mean America under lockdown. I mean living in complete solitude for a long extended period of time. That was Elizabeth Gilbert. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Today's guest is Elizabeth Gilbert. She's the author of many wonderful books, including Eat, Pray, Love, The Signature of All Things, and most recently, City of Girls. On a personal note, I wanted to give some context before we jumped in here. Four years ago, I started this show uh, with my friend Corey Atad. He was helping me edit the podcast at the time. And I remember we started putting together a short list, as one does of some of our dream guests. These were people that we wanted to sit with for an hour, uh, all of whom were probably out of our reach for a podcast with about 100 people listening 
half of them my family. (laughs) But in the intervening four years, some of those folks on that list have come on. Gloria Steinem, Werner Herzog, Laura Dern, Malcolm Gladwell, Noam Chomsky. I mention all of this because at the top of that list was Liz Gilbert. You'll understand why in this conversation, if you don't already. But it was her book on creativity, Big Magic, that helped me not only make Talk Easy, but continue making Talk Easy. You know, we try to make each of these episodes, all 169 of them, special. That's a hard thing to do week after week, but it's something we do try to do, whether you're listening at home or in the yard or on your walk, wherever you are in this quarantine, we do try. We don't always succeed, or let me be fair, I don't always succeed, but God knows everyone on this team uh, certainly tries. As for Liz, I feel a certain kind of kinship with what she does on the page and what we do on this podcast. She's irrepressibly curious, a searcher, interested in getting to the heart of things. I don't want to spoil this conversation, but know that this is the first time a guest has convinced me not to edit a couple parts of a conversation. I guess I should have expected that, of all people, Liz would challenge my ideas about what is permissible to share and what is not. So, we kept in the imperfections, and... You know, in this moment of ours, maybe that's exactly what we need to be making visible to people. I hope you enjoy. Elizabeth Gilbert, thank you so much for being here. We just went through a really enjoyable process of setting up these microphones. Are you feeling okay? I'm feeling good, and I also feel like like you and I have been through something together now and we know each other in a way that, you know, other people could never understand the particular bond. (laughs) And I'm proud of us. I feel like we went through it with a lot of grace, a lot of patience, a lot of compassion. It was good. It was a good moment. I definitely think you went through it with a lot of grace. (laughs) I was just trying my best to uh, keep cool in all of it. We're here, though. I was impressed by your patience also. Thanks. Well, you know, these are hard times, and I feel like these these moments of technological challenge are the times that test man's soul. Um, <laughs> so uh, some people have greatness thrust upon them, Sam. <laughs> yeah. And this is just one of those occasions. There's really... This is just one of those occasions. A Zoom mix-up turns into a moment of heroism, and it just... You know, I, I'm not a hero. I don't want to be called a hero. No, and I, I just, and I would never accuse you of being. <laughs> no, absolutely not. So your latest book, City of Girls, I'm sure you have talked about it a lot, but I want to read from something here. You describe your protagonist, uh, Vivian Morris, as a good person who may not be a good girl. She's sexually curious and eager. A 19-year-old who moves to New York City in the 1940s. As I started reading this book, I was suddenly reminded of someone else's story of a woman who moved to New York at about 19, leaving her family in Litchfield, Connecticut for college. And I I guess I just wanted to start here and where your story dovetails with Vivian's. Well, I'll start by saying that I've heard it said, and I think there's a lot of truth to it, that um, every novel is a memoir. 
and every memoir is a work of fiction. <laughs> and and I've long said that if anybody is interested in really learning about me, I think you would learn more by reading my novels um, than by reading my memoirs. And it's not because I'm trying to be obtuse in the memoirs. It's just that writing a memoir is so, it's so studied. It's so curated. There's so much care that has to go into it. There's so many ethical questions that you're struggling with when you write it. Is my truth the only truth? Am I being fair to the people that I'm writing about? Will I be sued? Can I can I put this detail in here? Do I want people to know this about me? How do I be revealing and also not over-revealing? It's, it's, it's just a lot of mental work um, in a different kind of way. When I'm writing a novel, I can put everything into it that's actually from my life without very much reservation whatsoever. So there's a, it's a kind of a free-for-all. <laughs> so to answer your question, where does it dovetail? Yeah, I, I'm very, my life in many ways was very similar to, to Vivian Morris's, except not in New York City in the 1940s in a theater company run by my eccentric aunt. <laughs> yeah, but there, there is something to you coming to New York in 1987 going to college. You worked as a cook, a bartender, a waitress. I love this quote you have. You said, young adulthood is about finding out what your boundaries are. And for me, the only way I can figure out where the boundary is, is by crossing it by about 10 miles at full speed. <laughs> I'm interested in going back to this year of 87. And in that period where you are this young person, away from home, running around. It was a distressing combination because I had huge, ungovernable appetites for adventure, for sex, for intrigue, for um, everything that New York City had to offer um, to somebody who grew up on a small family Christmas tree farm and who could not wait to get out of town and be free. Um, I also had huge intellectual appetites. I was like, I didn't waste my time as much as I was running about and being wild. I felt this huge urgency to take advantage of being in New York and take advantage of being at NYU. And I, I remember being, you know, I was a freshman in college and I, whenever I would meet a senior, I would bring out a notebook and I would ask them to write down the names of the most exciting professors um, because I wanted to be in the most exciting classes. And and um, I was hungry. I was thirsty. And a lot of that hunger grew into the person who I've become and the life that I've created for myself. Um, and some of that hunger grew into you know, basically emotional car accidents, <laughs> um, you know, or driving off of cliffs accidentally or driving your car through someone's house accidentally. You know, some of it was, it was a lot of thrashing around. Not all of it was disastrous, but some of it was. <laughs> did, did you know it was disastrous at the time? Well, denial is an amazing thing. I knew it when, when the disaster hit you know, but not, not usually until then. Um, like, and then I knew it, you know, I knew it through heartbreak. I knew it through shame. Um, I knew it through, as I, as you had that quote about crossing boundaries, I knew it through the pain that I caused other people and the incredible distress that that would bring to me. But I didn't know how to stop wanting what I wanted, um, which was to be really, really overstimulated all the time. How did you cause pain to others? Oh, by, by, various kinds of misbehaving, lying, cheating, 
um, double-timing people, breaking their hearts, making promises I couldn't keep. And I, I don't say that like I'm sort of laughing at it, but I don't say it lightly because people's hearts are, are real things. And it's there, there's something that's a great contrast with what my 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 true nature is very kind, and I don't want to do that. Um, but I also just had really, I just had really big appetites for experience that I that were governing me more than I was governing them. And when when people talk about this novel and they talk about City of Girls, they say, oh, it's so refreshing to see a novel about a woman who's in control of her sexuality. And I'm like, not really. That's not really what this book is about. It's a book about a woman whose sexuality is in control of her. Right. Um, and, and, and that's a story that I don't feel like I've seen very often. And when I do see it, the female protagonist tends to not survive it. Um, and, and so I survived my appetites and, and I'm most people that I know survived theirs. And, and that's sort of the basis for the story was how do we survive our shame? How do we survive our mistakes? Um, you know, how do we come into being in, in ways that where we can be both as free as possible, but causing as little damage as possible to ourselves and others? In your 20s, it seemed like you valued experiences at the expense of other people. Sometimes. Is that fair to say? I don't want to mischaracterize. No, no, no. It's it's okay. I think you can say that. I also sometimes valued experiences at the expense of myself. Um, and, and What does that mean? There's, well, putting myself in, in dangerous situations. And I certainly valued experience over stability. Um, and I definitely valued freedom over safety. And, and that's something there's a line in the book where Vivian says that even into her middle age, she said it was more important for me to be free than it was for me to be safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's always, this is another thing that I wanted to, to just, I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm just saying that there's always going to be women like that. <laughs> there are always going to be women like that. They came to New York in 1987. They came in 1940. They came in 1830. She arrived in New York two months ago. I don't know what she's doing now in quarantine, but like the, there's there's always going to be that girl. And, and she's hopefully home. Hopefully she's home, but she's probably not. <laughs> she's probably not. She's probably breaking all kinds of rules. Um, and is she going on like a bunch of Skype Zoom dates or something, or, or what is maybe, happening? Maybe, or or maybe you know, I mean, or maybe just behaving in ways that put other people at risk and put herself at risk because that would be in keeping. Um, and 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 I'm, it's not that I want to glorify that. It's just that I wanted to tell a story about it. <laughs> you have a fondness for people that look like and did what you did in your 20s. Yeah, and I have a fondness that it, that's taken me years to develop for myself in my 20s because for a long time I had a shame about like, God, why couldn't I just be normal? Why couldn't I hold it together? Why couldn't I be, um, why couldn't I be what I had been taught a good girl was? Uh-huh. Um, and, and the answer is because I couldn't, you know, there's a certain nature that I had that, that I came in with and had to kind of work my way through and explore my way through. So, so now I have a great deal of fondness for it. And as I say, a lot of that kind of riotous appetite also really gave me my life. You know, I mean, that same spirit is the thing that made me go take really strange, unusual jobs and um, pursue things that I was curious about and be able to write stories about them, be daring enough to walk into Spin Magazine's offices and talk my way through three personal assistants till I got to an editor to ask for a job. Like a lot of it was also why I have what I have now. Right. Um, You know, um, a, a meeker 
more polite, um, obedient girl wouldn't have gotten those things. <laughs> you know, when you were in the fourth grade, you have a teacher, Miss Sandy Carpenter. Mm-hmm. Uh, she announced a fundraiser and students were asked to sell grinders, which are just sandwiches for people who don't know what grinders are, uh, to pay for a class trip. In the New York Times, they wrote, there was never any question whether Gilbert would participate. Still, door-to-door sales of a perishable foodstuff can provide intimidating, even to a zealous nine-year-old. So her mother, Carol, initiated a training program. She made Gilbert go outside and close the front door. (laughs) Gilbert then had to knock, introduce herself, and explain what she was selling and why. Our family's going on vacation next week, Carol might announce. What if we want the grinders two weeks from now? To which Gilbert would generally respond, I don't know, and start crying. Back it up, her mother would say. Try it again. Get it right, kid. And close the door. (laughs) How much do you think your parents are informing you at that age? Because you described your dad as someone who was never happy unless he was wet and cold. (laughs) Still. And and you had your own version of that. Well, I, okay, all of this has to be spoken with a caveat that um, the most brilliant minds in the world don't know how much a child is informed by their parents and their training and their upbringing. Like, that's one of the big mysteries um, that I doubt we will ever solve. Nature, nurture, how much of you, how much of it is your inherent software, how much of it is your environment. I don't know the answer to that any more than anybody else does. Um, but I know that in the case of my mom, her biggest anxiety about her daughters was that she would raise girls who were dependent on people and who were frightened or unable to take care of themselves. Um, my mother was incredibly resourceful. She had She was a self-made woman in terms of she moved out of her family farm when she was 15 years old and supported herself from the age of 15 on. Um, always working, worked her entire way through high school, put herself through nursing school. Um, just had a real sense uh, of the world that no one's going to take care of you. And saw what happened to the girls and women in her family who were waiting for somebody to take care of them or who believed that somebody was going to take care of them. And and so that drill at the doorbell with the door, you know, when I was selling grinders for fourth grade, you know, she took that very seriously. (laughs) Um, And she imparted to me that it was that it was serious business. Um, You have to learn how to knock on a door, you have to learn how to look someone in the eye, you have to learn how to introduce yourself, you have to learn how to, you have to learn how to work harder than everyone else. And you definitely will be selling more grinders than anyone else in the fourth grade. Um, You know, that's a matter of survival, not right. even a matter of competition. Maybe I arrived with that hardwired into me, or maybe that was drilled into me. <laughs> um, but but I, I definitely knew from a very early age that um, nobody, and especially not my parents, were going to be looking after me when I was over the age of 18. That was made very clear. Um, and so there really was a sense of, like, I got to go get this thing. But that sounds that sounds really sinister and and anxiety producing. And part of it was, um, but part of it too was like, I was pretty excited to get out there. <laughs> you know, um, like I, I, I was, oh, I, I keep using the word hungry, but I was really hungry for the world. 
That makes you smile. It does. <laughs> there was a look that you you gave to the left side over there, and it really felt like you saw yourself in your twenties in that moment. Yeah, yeah, and that God, I just I just remember that everything was so exciting. Um, everything was so exciting, and and everything was the opportunity for new experiences. The summer between my freshman and sophomore year of college, I went to Philadelphia to live with my sister. She was in graduate school at UPenn and she had an extra bedroom and I moved in with her and there was this diner where um, we used to go to eat and I loved it. It was like a American, a classic American Silk City diner um, from the 30s, 40s maybe. Um, and the guy who owned it was just really eccentric and loud and it was just this bustling live vivid. I have so many great stories from that place. And and I remember it was my first waitressing job and I asked him for a job and I'd never waitressed before, but I convinced him to let me try. And I remember coming home thrilled because he'd given me the job and saying to my sister and her her boyfriend, who was also a graduate student, I was like, can you believe it? I get to, I get to go to the American diner every single day. I get to go there every single day and I'm going to get paid. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember him looking at me, her boyfriend looking at me with sort of contempt. And he said, yeah, I remember what it was like to be 19. And I remember even at the time thinking, no, you don't asshole. you you were, I can tell just by looking at you, you've never been fucking excited <laughs> about anything. You know, like I was like, shut up. Like, don't degrade me. This is awesome. And, and it was awesome. And, and working there enabled me to be able to save my money and go traveling. I met people who I'm still friends with. I got stories that became part of my first short story collection. It was a gold mine that place. But yeah, that, that level of enthusiasm was a little hard for some people to take. <laughs> But but I submit and still hold to this day that that was a pretty cool way to be 19. By the way, it's still there. You're still 19. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to be honest. I, I'm 25 and I feel like more crabby than you. <laughs> Thank you. That's very nice to say. It's the last compliment I'm going to give to the end. So okay, that's... <laughs> thanks. I can't wait to see what the one at the end is. <laughs> I, I haven't planned it, but I have to figure it out in that time. <laughs> Make it a good one. Make it a good one, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> no, but really, th there is such an enthusiasm that you have. It's infectious. It's it's absolutely infectious. Um, and it's something I hope you hold dear to yourself because it's it's not uh, it's not so common. Mm -hmm. Thank you for saying that. Um, there are times in life when I lose it. And when I do, I get really upset. <laughs> I get really upset. And I feel like there, a great violation has occurred. Um, and it's like, oh, no, 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 that's not okay. You know, it's not okay that that's gone. Um, and I, I will fight tooth and nail to get it back. When have you lost it? I lose it when I get really, dis I can get just so distressed that that it shuts down. And um, so I'm thinking of times where I've lost it. I mean, I certainly lost it when I was 30 and I was going through my first divorce and through what became an almost three-year-long depression. Um, you know, and it really did feel like something that I had lost, you right. know, like something that I had misplaced. And I remember getting really frightened about two years in because I thought, wait, wait a minute, what if this is, um, what if this isn't just a, f a bad season of my life. What if it's permanent? Yeah. What if this is what I am now? Um, 
that just felt absolutely terrifying. Um, and I've, and I've lost it at times in anger. Anger can override it when I feel I've been done wrong, you know, um, and I can get really righteous and really outraged and really hurt and that can shut it down and I can get lost in that story for a while. Um, but yeah, mostly it's been through heartbreak or disappointing myself or shame or anger. Yeah, the big emotions that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> they can bring it in. Um, but I think the enthusiasm is my screensaver. Like, I think that's my default setting that my nature wants to return to and will always try to return to. And everything else that disrupts that is, um, yeah, it's, it's really painful for me to lose that when I lose it. Can we go back to that time that you're speaking of? Because in 2002, you're 33 years old, traveling to Indonesia, and you're in a terrible depression like you just talked about. You go to this remote fishing island. You decided that you needed to spend 10 days in silence to try to have a truth and reconciliation with yourself because you were, as you put it, so full of shame and pain. What was that pain and shame that you felt like you had to work through? I just felt like such a failure because my marriage had failed. And um, and because I, it's so funny, but it's like now it just seems like I just want to go back and pick her up and put her under my arm and be like, oh, honey, I can't believe you're, that this is what you're allowing to take you down. It would be hard to to express how much I had internalized that by a, a certain age, you're supposed to be married and you're supposed to have children. Um, and I did not want to be married and I did not want to have children. And I tried so hard to override that with, uh, you know, I really stuffed that down. And I had gotten married with the promise that that I would be a mother. Um, that was the plan. Um, Promise to who? To my then husband. And in a weird way to the world, you know? Um, and But the deal that I had struck, which is, again, it's like, oh my God, this kid. I got married really young. I got married at 24. My sister also got married at 24. My mother also got married at 24. It's like something in me had just believed that that's the age you get married. Um, and and the promise I made to my my then husband was that when I turned thirty, I would we could start a family. Um, but that date, as it approached, I'm, and I'm not speaking hi- with hyperbole here, genuinely felt like a death sentence. I mean, I felt like my thirtieth birthday would be the day my life ended, and the life by by which I mean that life of enthusiasm, um, and adventure, and travel, and creativity, and all of that would just have to be put away forever. And it truly felt like death. Um, it was like the opposite of a biological clock ticking. It was like a bomb ticking. <laughs> and, and, I, and I hid it and I suppressed it and I tried to talk myself out of it. I mean, I did everything I could, but my, my whole being shut down. My whole body, I, I remember vomiting every single day in the six months leading up to my 30th birthday. It was like this weird, like, comic joke on morning sickness, you know, like <laughs> instead of, it was, it was vomiting because I didn't want to get pregnant. <laughs> you know, it was like, I was like, you know, and, and because I didn't trust myself in any way, I was too young to trust myself. All I could do was try to override all of that, you know, but, but like literally every atom of my being was like, don't do this. 
you know? And I was like, yeah, but I have to, but I have to, but I, I said I would. I said I would. And then I couldn't do it. And, um, and, and I was very ashamed. And then shame was heaped upon shame because my, my husband was really hurt and he turned his hurt into, into rage and blame. And I took it. I took every single bit of it as my fault. Um, and so that's what I was grappling with there. Yeah. Um, just failure, bad person, hurt people, disappointed people. How dare you? Who do you think you are? What are you going to do now? Um, yeah, it was, it was awful. The universe was speaking to you. I mean, it doesn't always speak in such clear signals. It will if you don't listen to the subtle signals. You know, um, it will speak to you as loud as it fucking has to. <laughs> you know, and I, I remember my friend uh, Richard from Texas, who I met and wrote about a lot in Eat, Pray, Love, saying to me, if you hadn't finally listened to that, it would have made you have a car accident. Um, like, <laughs> oh, it, like whatever it had to do, you know. And I think people who have been through these sorts of things in your life, you know what I'm talking about, where it's like there's something that is being spoken that you are overriding and it won't let you. Um, and and it's going to win because it's the truth, you know, and the truth usually wins no matter, you know. <laughs> I think it was David Foster Wells who said that the truth will set you free, but not before it's had its way with you. Um, <laughs> you know, so th those years were the truth having its way with me. And I'm much, much better now about catching it so much sooner. You know, I really do believe in trust and I have learned that when my whole sort of physiological being starts to shut down, there's a lie that I'm telling. And, um, and, and then the question is to see if I can find it. You know, where am I lying? What am I lying about? Why am I, what am I pretending I want to do that I don't want to do? Who am I pretending that I love that I don't love? Um, what am I, what am I martyring myself to? You know, and in a way I've come to appreciate the fact that my, whatever, my physiological, mentals, whatever, my whole like entity just can't survive in a lie. <laughs> it just can't. It just, it just breaks down and it breaks down immediately and the breakdown starts really quickly. So now I catch it a lot sooner. I don't, I like to think I will never put myself through three years or four years of torment like that again. Um, I'll change what I have to change a lot sooner. What was the universe telling you in 1993 when you have that first short story published, uh, they called your your piece the debut of an American writer, <laughs> the first unpublished short story writer in the magazine since Norman Mailer, and that's really the only way I think you two have something in common. <laughs> what did you make of that title? Okay, so a couple things. One is it was an enormous relief because I remember feeling like. Even if nothing ever happens again after this, this happened. And now I'm a published writer. And that had been my goal for as long as I could remember. So I was like, oh, that's done. Right. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you had a steady stream of rejection letters for seven years going into this. And by Esquire, too, and by that same editor. But he made the mistake about five years prior of sending me a rejection letter that had his name on it. And then I had him in my sights. Yeah. You know, I was like, I got a name now. I'm not just sending this to some blank, you know, faceless fiction department at Esquire magazine. 
And I started just assaulting him with short stories. <laughs> and, um, you know, I was like clinging to him like he was my God. And in a way, I, in my mind, I had imagined him. He had this very, still has, this very elegant name, Anthony Barzillet Freund. And I imagined him to be some august, bearded, um, sort of, you know, patrician corner office. <laughs> and he was like an intern. You know, he was, I think the first time he read my stuff, he was an intern reading through the slush pile. But cool, it was somebody. It was the first person who I'd ever had intimate, direct contact with at a magazine. And I wanted, I wanted to be in there. So yeah, I pushed and pushed at him. It was a great joy. There was very little apart from joy. I remember some anxiety that it, that it might not happen, that something would happen between when they bought it and when the magazine went to print and it would be disrupted and it wouldn't occur. So I had some anxiety about that. But then once it actually existed where I could hand it to people, you got to understand what a fucking pamphleteer I had been my entire life of my own work. From the time I was a kid, I was just like, read this. Look, I made this. Hey, I wrote a play. I'm, let's do this. You know, like just pushing and pushing myself um, into the world so much. And finally, there was somebody other than me who believed in me. <laughs> so it was, it was just such a great, it was such a great, great, wonderful, exciting feeling. And I didn't know whether I would be able to ever do it again. And as for the debut of an American writer thing, I think even then I understood that, and I say this with all love and respect to Esquire, who gave me my place in the world and gave me my foothold, I knew that that was a marketing thing for right. them. And it's so funny now, it's such a different world. You know, fiction was published in magazines 25 years ago, <laughs> and people cared about it and noticed it. Like it, now it seems like, what, what did that even signify, you know? But it, um, but at the time, they had found a way to, and they'd found a way to also make themselves good by publishing a young woman and with a, a voice that worked in Esquire. Um, so I could see they were running a little hustle there too. So I didn't take it too seriously. <laughs> but I was happy about it. <laughs> they were trying to sell some magazines. Can't mm -hmm. blame them. And they were trying to reestablish themselves as the Esquire of the 1960s, which was what everybody always wanted to be back then in the 90s, um, because Esquire in the 1960s had been this this literary tour de force, and um, and so yeah, I think I, they were they were working their own angle there. <laughs> God bless them. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> to this day, thank you. It was like nothing could have. It was the launch pad for everything. Inside the short story itself, there seems to be a parallel between Martha and the protagonist. These are two young people who are excited by the idea of Denver. You know, they're excited about leaving, about going anywhere else. And it reminded me of this film called River of Grass. I don't know if you've seen it. Mm -mm. Oh, it's so, so good. It's uh, Kelly Reichardt's first movie, and it's set in Florida around these two kids. They're about the same age as the characters in Pilgrims, your short story. And it's people in a small town who have these lofty ideas about venturing outside, about leaving their family, their hometown, everyone they know. And the tragedy of that film, and it's in essence some of the sadness of your story, is that 
for most of those people who grow up in a Litchfield, Connecticut. The lofty dreams of leaving are just that. They stay there. They stay as dreams. And most people live their lives thinking, God, I wish I just tried it. I don't know if I would have liked it, mm. but I wish I tried and moved to New York. I wish I did the thing that I had dreamt about doing under the stars, as they do in your story. And to me, you are an example of this story, except the next act of it is you actually do leave. It's funny because when you were talking about um, the regret of, oh, I wish I had done that, you know, my mind goes to, I wish I had moved to Europe. (laughs) I wish I had moved to, I wish I had moved to Europe. I wish I had like found a way, even though it would have been so out of reach for my family, but I wish I had found a way in high school to do a year abroad so I could have learned a language when my mind was more nimble and I could be bilingual now. Like I wish, like I, I don't, like I feel like I've lived a pretty big life and done a lot of things, but it doesn't matter. There's always that, oh man, you know, if only I had um, gone to France when I was 16, like what would that would have been like? Um, so it's not that I'm without those thoughts myself, but from the time that I was, I'm going to say 13 was when it became almost unbearable for me to live in my town. And and I think I probably became unbearable <laughs> as a result of that. I'm going to take out probably. I think I became unbearable as a result of that because um, I was so aware that the town was so small. And, and I was aware, there were parts of it that I loved. I was aware that I grew up in a beautiful place. I grew up in, in New England and and in the Berkshires, it's really, really pretty there. And I had a sense of the natural beauty of the place, which is still the thing that I like about it when I go back and visit my parents and they still live on the same farm. Um, I still get the same hit that I got as a kid from those pine forests. And it's so special in that way. It's as pretty as anywhere in the world. Um, But I couldn't bear the fact that I was still in school with the same 80 kids who I went to kindergarten with and that I would be with them until the end and that we were all white and that we were all exactly the same. And I was so frustrated. I was so incredibly frustrated. I could not get out of there fast enough. And I really was correct to go to New York because it's where I belonged and New York made space for me and still does. Um, And I still call it the great mother you know, it's still the place that gave birth to the life that I get to have now. Um, so, yeah, it's just really hard to be. It's like a Bruce Springsteen song. It's really hard to be a teenager in a small town when you long for so much more. And I and I remember being frustrated. This is a weird angle of it, but I remember being really frustrated with my friends who didn't want more. I couldn't understand that. Um, my friends who didn't want to leave. It just, that baffled me. Like it, it just was like, why don't you? <laughs> why, why is this enough? What's it like? I'm still, I'm still amazed. I have, I have certain cousins that I look at and I think, what's it like to be satisfied? <laughs> like to just be like, here's my high school boyfriend. You know, we got married here's our kids, here's our house. And I stare at them and look for signs of misery. And I don't see it. Like they they have really lovely lives and they're lovely people. And I'm like, 
What's that like? <laughs> Liz, I'm sure they really appreciate you going to these family gatherings and, and you sitting down and thinking, where's the misery? Where is it? Why? Well, actually, what I want to say is like, what's it like to not feel like you're on fire? You know, um, like to not feel like you're on fire and the world's on fire and you have to go be in the fire of the world. Um, I marvel at it. And and I remember I have one cousin who I really love and she has a beautiful life that she's created with her partner that she's been with forever and her kids. And, and, and she said to me, like, if I, if I had one life to live that wasn't mine, I think I would like it to be yours. And, and I was like, well, I've got maybe, I said, what percentage of that of you is that? And she's like, maybe 2%. And I was like, that's cool. Cause I've got like 2% of my life that would want to be. But, so it seems like we're living the life we want. You know, um, there's just a little bit of curiosity of what would it, what would it have been like to take a totally different path, <laughs> but she doesn't really want it. And I don't really want her life, but, um, but I do wonder what would it like be like to just be like, this is fine. You know, this is fine here. This place is fine. This person is fine. This job is fine. Um, that's just not what I'm like. <laughs> if people like you and I could do it, it would be wonderful. But since we can't, it would be agony. Well, I also just think it's what your nature is. And there's a little anecdote that's neat. Pray Love about this guy who I met when I was in India. And he was from a dairy farm in County Cork in Ireland. Um, grew up in a very conservative, very traditional, very rural Irish setting, um, pretty restricted world. And, but he was on fire. You know, he was on fire from the time he could remember. He was, he was on fire. He was hungry. He was full of yearning, longing, agitation, emotion, craving, desperation, all of it. And he went out in the world threw himself, impaled himself on the world and um, had various adventures and misadventures. And then finally in his thirties found his way to this ashram um, where I met him. And he's just, it was so, it's so funny the people you meet in places like that, you know, it's like, here's this guy who's got a face like the map of Ireland, you know, he's just like, he looks like he should be like mucking out sheep and he's got the accent to match. And here he is like on his knees in a, in a, at 4am, chanting in Sanskrit, you know, like with the rest of us hungry weirdos trying to find something. And he told me that he went home to see his father, who is a, a man who had, like my father, had no interest really in leaving the farm mm-hmm. and, um, and, and was perfectly happy having each day look like the day before. And he was trying to explain to his dad about what he had discovered in India. And, and they're sitting there and they're staring at the fire, and he says to his dad, "Ah, you got to understand, you know, I found this, this path of meditation and prayer, and and it's it's amazing, Dad. You know, it 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 really stills your mind. <laughs> it quiets your mind. That's what he said. It really quiets your mind, Dad. And his father, without lifting his eyes from the fire, says, "I've got a quiet mind, son." <laughs> like. I didn't have to leave my house. Like, I've got a quiet mind. And Sean was his name. Sean said, but I don't, uh, you know, I don't. And, and, and I don't either. And, and if you don't, you have to go find whatever you have to find to, to satisfy it. Putting a pause on the conversation for a second to tell you about Thrive Psychology Group. When a crisis hits, we're usually able to connect with family and friends for support. During COVID-19, the lack of connection has caused mental health challenges for all of us. 
I know I've certainly had my fair share. As a result, many are turning to online therapy, or trying it for the first time. So, Thrive Psychology Group offers therapy and support for women across the U.S. And since finding the right fit between you and your therapist is incredibly important, Thrive offers 30-minute consultations to see if it's right for you. You can speak with doctorate-level therapists at mythrivepsychology.com today. And now, back to Elizabeth Gilbert. Throughout your magazine writing period, and I think it's important to to get into this because uh, so many people around the world read E. Pray Love, and that book was their introduction to you. Before that, you are this magazine writer at GQ. You have an incredible job. I mean, you're, you're a contract writer who has to write five articles a year. It is a very coveted position. But the thing I keep going back to and, and thinking about your work in that time, whether it's the Frankie Manning piece, the Tom Waits piece, you've always talked about how you wanted to be one of the guys, that you felt more comfortable writing about men, that you were more interested in men. Now that we have some distance from it, why do you think that was? I think it's a combination of things. I, For one thing, I was boy crazy. So I was, there was a little bit of it was just obsession of just wanting to be around male energy and being really turned on by male energy, excited by male energy. And it wasn't even necessary, you know, I, I all of the men who I wrote those profiles about they weren't my lovers and I wasn't interested in that way, but I was excited by them as mass, by their masculinity. Um, and, and that was sort of thrilling for me to want to be around. Some of it was wanting to break the code, almost like I wanted to become somebody who could be in a room with men and they would just act like what they're like. And, um, you know, so it was like, what is this weird other half of the species, you know? Um, what are their secret ways of being and their codes? I was always really excited when, like when I was out, when I worked in, on this ranch in Wyoming and, you know, after everybody got used to me and and I was a trail cook and we'd, we'd be out in the woods for, you know, 10 days or two weeks at a time on these hunting trips and just sitting around the fire with these like really gnarly hardened cowboys and they're just telling stories and it's like they're speaking in their native tongue as if there isn't a woman around. Um, that always to me felt like such a victory. It reminded me of when I was a kid and my, so I'm just remembering this now, but like when, when people ask that question, if you could have dinner with anybody in the world, who would it be living or dead? I hate that question. <laughs> it's such a, and everyone asks that question, but for me, it's such an easy answer. It would be 1977, 78, I would be seven or eight years old. I would be at my grandparents' house in upstate New York. My great-grandfather would be there, my grandfather, my uncles, my dad. It was back when all of them were active alcoholics before they became recovered alcoholics or died. (laughs) And they were the most um, incredible storytellers. And they were so outrageous. And they were so in their world that there was that same feeling I had later in life of, they were drinking a lot too, um, and they were competing with each other and telling these these amazing, incredibly inappropriate stories—stories stories you would that no 
person in their sanity would tell with a, a seven-year-old girl at the table, you know, but if they could forget about you, then you could you could witness this amazing explosion of this kind of adulthood that looked very different from the what female adulthood looked like. And in my family, female adulthood just looked like resentful martyrdom. You know, it was just women cleaning up shit, women taking care of shit, women washing the dishes. What was happening while those men were sitting around passing the bottle and telling amazing stories is the women were cleaning up the kitchen. And I would often be pulled away from that table to help. And I didn't want to be in that sphere, um, in that domestic feminine sphere. And I think when I look back at myself in my 20s, what I really longed for was to be those people, you know? Um, and when I think about some of the men who I fell desperately in love with throughout my life, it was a mixture of love and envy of wanting the freedom that they had. And the more free they lived their lives, the more I wanted to be with them. But I actually think what I wanted to be was them. Do you think you fall in love easily? I do. Yeah. With everything. <laughs> with a restaurant, with a, a color, <laughs> with a person, with a bagel. I don't know. Like, yeah. A bagel? Sure. <laughs> if, it's, if it's the right bagel at the right time or the wrong bagel at the wrong time. Um, <laughs> yeah, I definitely am very susceptible to to love um, in many forms. And I fall in love with my friends easily. Um, I have a friend who said to me that he said, your relationships with your friends are more emotionally intense than most people's marriages. Um, you know, it's like... <laughs> it's like the level of partnership and commitment and devotion. When E Pray Love came out and did as well as it did, um, you said it was a tornado, but I was no longer the tornado. Mm. Is that what it felt like? There's a question people have about E Pray Love and like, was that difficult for you to manage? Like that level of scrutiny, success, the phenomenon that it became anything that wasn't the depression that I had gone through before that was just a breeze, you know, like anything that wasn't that, no problem. <laughs> um, that was the easy part. You know, the, the hard part was before the book and the book settled so much of me into myself and helped me so much the, the living of that book and the writing of that book. Um, it like landed me in myself in a way that I had never been before. Not fully because the journey wasn't over and life isn't over and there's still more stuff to figure out always. But um, I was a very different person on the other side of that journey than I was before it and a much happier person. So when the tornado came of that book's success, I was in a good place for it to happen um, because I was, I, I was pretty grounded. I mean, as grounded as I can be. <laughs> And I was, I was pretty, yeah, I was pretty steady. What do you think that success did to you as a person? It gave me an enormous amount of freedom. And it gave me to a certain extent that, that freedom that I envied so much and longed for and wanted to emulate in some of the men who I knew in my life. Um, I mean, to, to just answer it very honestly, it gave me financial freedom for the rest of my life. That's no joke for a creative person. And that's no joke for a woman to, I mean, I'd never been dependent on anybody anyway. I'd always made my own way in the world, but to, to truly be able to say to my creative self, you can now do whatever you want. And I have done, <laughs> I have done, you know, I've, I've used that to pursue whatever I was interested in creatively to write the books that I wanted to write and not necessarily the ones that I thought would sell. And 
Um, and I've used it to give freedom to other people as well um, and be able to bail out friends who are in trouble or, or finance their art projects. Or um, so, there, so there's, you know, there's a freedom that it brought that it still brings that I'm incredibly grateful for and, and I won't ever stop being grateful for. Has any of that freedom been taken away because of that book's success? Less than you would think. Um, and I think that if I were a private person, that answer would be very different. If I were somebody who was a retiring sort um, or, <laughs> uh, or felt uncomfortable in the public gaze or felt uncomfortable about people knowing anything about her, then that would be agony. But if I were that person, I would not have written Eat, Pray, Love. I'm the one who told everybody everything, you know? Um, so it's not like my life has been hounded by paparazzi <laughs> or that I was born into royalty and never could have privacy. You know, I chose to live my life in this way that's really open. Right. And, and I also chose what I told you. So there's nothing that's out there in the world about me that I didn't put out there in the world about me. And what's not out there in the world about me isn't out there in the world about <laughs> me. Because <laughs> I'm not important enough for people to be like chasing around. And so, you know what I mean? Like I'm not a, a Kardashian, you know? I'm, um, so, and I'm a writer. At the end of the day, like the least famous 14th most important character on a reality show is more famous than I am, you know? Like I'm not, I, I can walk around in the world back when we used to, be able to walk around in the world. And, you know, people don't recognize me that often. It's not that, you know, I'm just not that, I'm not as famous as it might sound. <laughs> my, my books are more than I am. I saw you looking, so I was, are you, do you have to go? No, I'm drawing a picture. Oh, you are? Yeah. I really thought, I, I thought you were like texting and I was like, wow, you're really talking well no, for I'm just texting too. I'm just doodling. <laughs> I'm just drawing half moons. That is, that is. I'm sorry I had such a cynical read of it. Oh, I'm glad you spoke up. I would hate to have you think that I'm sitting here texting. I, I was like, wow, you're really articulate for being able to text at the same time. I can't do that at all. <laughs> Holy shit. No, I'm just drawing a picture. I'm just drawing a picture. Um, there's actually a TED Talk about how doodling makes you be able to focus more. Yeah. Um, so I like to keep a piece of paper next to me when I'm talking so I can doodle about on it. I'm going to edit this out, but I just, it's, this is such a strange way of doing this podcast. I can't tell you like uh, how much I'm enjoying our time, but I, I don't know, something about people coming into this studio that we have, that's like not like a normal studio and it's, there's music on that I like and it just it's so hard to replicate that. And we're do I think we're doing a good job. I have a question. Why would you not leave that in the podcast? Because I think that's interesting. Liz. Damn it, now we have to leave it in there. <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, I think the longing and the sadness in that and the melancholy is interesting. And it's like part of it's like your version of what this weird quarantine moment feels like. I mean, I don't think you're saying that it's as bad as being on the front lines of a, you know, a triage nurse in an emergency room right now, but it's, it's like, you feel it. It's, it's what you're feeling. It, it is. And it's, um, 
my very privileged version of it because I do find the joy of doing this show is that 90% of people who come on, I do not know them. They do not know me. We are two strangers in a room and I try to create a space that is safe and honest um, and vulnerable and it's really much harder to do that when I'm in a closet and you're in your house and, you know, a galaxy in between us. But I've been thinking about, to your point, I've been thinking about this idea of intimacy. I don't know what intimacy will look like after this. How are you grappling with that idea of what future intimacy will look like? So I'm staying out of the future a little bit other than to be like, sort of openly curious about it, but I'm I, I'm staying out of it in terms of making any predictions, whether they're doomsday predictions or um, utopian predictions, because I don't know, and I can't know. And I've noticed that the predictions that people are making about the future look suspiciously like their own existing worldviews. <laughs> so all of my friends who are Utopians are saying, you know, this is the moment that the earth reclaims herself environmentally and, and we change all the social systems and, and, and economic injustice. And I was like, okay, maybe, <laughs> you know, and all my dystopian friends are like, you know, this is, this is where the, the beginning of the end, you know, where it really truly becomes a post-apocalyptic nightmare landscape people have to cannibalize each other to live. Maybe, I don't know. What I'm really, really curious about in my own experience of this is this extraordinary opportunity to experience solitude. And I don't want to waste that. And I think that humans are, a lot of the suffering that's happening in the quarantine and, and in the uncertainty about when we can all be together again um, I keep hearing people say this is really hard psychologically on people. Humans are social animals. We're social animals. We're meant to be together. And that's inarguably true, but that's not the only thing we are. We're also spiritual animals. And every spiritual tradition in the history of the world advises at some point or another going and being alone for a long period of time and being in retreat and being in stillness and being in isolation. And I've sought that out at various times in my life. I've paid money for it and now I'm getting it for free. <laughs> and um, I've paid money for it and I've had to do it in short periods of time because I had other things I had to do in the world. So I don't know what the world will look like after this, but I really don't know when again I'm gonna see a period in my life where I've got months where I can be alone. Um, like really alone, I don't just, I don't mean single, and I am that too, I mean solitary and I'm living alone. I'm doing my, I'm doing my COVID-19 by myself and I wouldn't have it any other way. I just have to say, as far as I'm concerned, however anyone is riding out their COVID-19, this is a judgment-free zone, like whatever you have to do. And for some people, and especially people who suffer from severe mental illness, loneliness, and isolation to begin with, you know, this isn't a joke and and this is something that that could cost them their lives and we're seeing that in the rise in suicide rates. Like this is a very hard thing for a lot of people. But if you're asking me how I'm experiencing it, 
this is a country I've never been to. And I don't mean America under lockdown. I mean living in complete solitude for a long extended period of time. On a personal level, you arrived at this moment on the heels of some pretty genuine grief. And uh, I go back to this poem that I have here in front of me. It's by Jack Gilbert, someone that I believe means a great deal to you. It's called Alone, and I can read some of it if you'd like to hear it. I always want to hear Jack Gilbert's poems. No relation. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, don't worry. This wasn't like a plug for your family member. No, no, it's not my Uncle Jack. (laughs) He wrote, uh, I never thought Machiko would come back after she died. But if she did, I knew it would be as a lady in a long white dress. It is strange that she has returned as somebody's Dalmatian. (laughs) (laughs) I love this poem. (laughs) I meet the man walking her on a leash almost every week. He says good morning, and I stoop down to calm her. He said once that she was never like that with other people. Sometimes she is tethered on their lawn when I go by. If nobody is around, I sit on the grass. When she finally quiets, she puts her head in my lap, and we watch each other's eyes as I whisper in her soft ears. She cares nothing about the mystery. She likes it best when I touch her head and tell her small things about my days and her friends. That makes her happy the way it always did. I can only imagine what that poem means to you and what you've gone through. Uh, Jack Gilbert is my poet laureate, so he has explained a lot to me in advance. He left. I never met him, and I never wanted to meet him because I love him too much, and I think it's Mm. important not to meet your idols, (laughs) Um, unless you're absolutely forced to. Um, But he was such a beautiful, beautiful poet, such a beautiful poet of hunger for life um, and love and grief. And he wrote a cycle of poems about Michiko, who was his his third great love of his life. Really, all of his poems are about the three great loves of his life. Um, there's just these epics in, in his life of... Um, Gianna in Italy in the 50s and 60s. And then, um, oh God, I can't remember his second wife's name. And then Michiko. And Michiko was a real tragedy because she was much younger than he was. And so she broke the rules of younger, older marriage. And she got cancer and died very young. Um, And then he wrote some exquisite poetry about her. So, you know, when Rhea was dying, so Rhea was, was, is the love of my life, um, and she died of cancer two years and a few months ago, and we had, prior to being together as romantic partners, we'd been friends for 17 years, and she was the single most important person in my life, um, and I never knew what to call her, because I was so loyal in my marriage, and... I loved her so much and I never would have crossed a line. It's like, I I didn't know what to, I used to call her, I mean, best friend just didn't even cut it. So I used to just call her my person. Um, And what that meant to me in my imagination is she's the most important person. She's the person. 
the first phone call in any emergency, the person I go to when I when I need to be told what to do and I'm stuck, uh, the person I celebrate with. She was everything. And she was the one person in the world that I felt I couldn't live without. Um, and then she died. She got cancer and she died. And we came together after her cancer diagnosis. I was, I finally was able to kind of articulate even to myself what she was, which is like, oh, this is the love of your life. <laughs> um, there's a word for that. There's a term for that. And, and you have to go be with her now. I couldn't let her die without telling her that and without going and being with her. And I'm so glad I did. And one of the things when when she was dying, we we would sometimes get into these kind of fits of anxiety because we were like, how are we going to find each other? You know, um, we kept talking about the portal. We're like, we got to find the, we got to, like, there's, this connection can't be severed. It just, we, we have to be able to communicate. And, and it really felt urgent to figure that out before she died. And, we did all sorts of stuff to try to figure it out. We did psychedelics together and we got a shaman and we did, you know, it was like, we got to find it. We got to find the portal. 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 What, you know, how, where will I find you? Where will I find you in the universe? Um, and she made all kinds of promises like, I'll come and find you. And I made all kinds of promises like, I'll come and find you. Um, here's the really sweet, beautiful reality of it. It's actually not hard. Um, <laughs> I'm just holding up my phone now. Here's what I do. I call her. <laughs> I just, and the way that I do that is that I, um, I just go to the voice memos on my phone, that app, and I push record and I just talk to her in the same way that Jack Gilbert was talking to that Dalmatian in exactly the same way. I tell her, in excruciatingly granular detail about my day, just like I used to. She always used to say that, excruciatingly granular detail. <laughs> but she loved it. She used to love it when I just when we just would talk about nothing. And these long walks that I'm taking in the woods out here in isolation, I bring my phone with me and I talk to Rhea for hours at a time. Um, and when I really need her counsel, which is the thing that I miss the most, I ask her what I should do. Just ask. And if I get really, really quiet, I'm given the answer. And it's not, there's nothing fancy about it. It's not a hallucination. I don't need to be on psychedelics to see it. She doesn't come to me like an apparition of Obi-Wan Kenobi. You know, it's, it's not a voice. It's not even a voice in my head. All of a sudden, I just know the answer. Um, she and the way that I prefer to see it is that she tells me. And so the portal that we were so desperately trying to find is just the same simple piece of intimacy that brought us together in the first place, which is we just talk to each other. Um, I don't need a psychic medium. I don't need tarot cards. I don't need <laughs> props. Um, I don't even really need the phone, but something about the fact that it's being recorded makes me feel like it's being received. And it's fun to make a phone call <laughs> through the universe. Um, and I wrote something in my journal recently about it. I just wrote, the supernatural is supernatural. It's just supernatural. It's super, it's natural. It's very natural. My connection with Rhea was and remains the most profound intimacy of my life. 
and that connection hasn't been severed, that doesn't mean that I haven't been grieving and it doesn't mean that I don't sometimes fall apart in storms of tears. Um, It doesn't mean that she's going to walk in the door or that I get to hold her or that we get to go to Target together or that we get to do like the shit we used to do that was just fun just because it was us. You know, all of that is gone. And that has to be grieved. But the only thing that you don't have to lose is the love. And the love is that intimate connection and it hasn't gone anywhere. Um, So... I mean, I used to beg her when she was dying. I was like, you got to send me signs. And other people in her life report these other sort of supernat- more supernatural encounters with her. You know, like they, they'll they say like, they'll talk to her and the lights will flicker or they'll, you know, things will happen that seem more like out of a movie about a spirit communicating with another spirit. And I haven't had any of that. <laughs> and she hasn't even really appeared to me in my dreams. I've had like maybe two dreams about her since she died two and a half years ago. It's so straightforward. She, we just communicate. We just talk to each other. Um, and, and I feel her really, really with me. And my friend Martha Beck, who I love very much, said after Rhea died, you two are so close that you're, you really become what Wordsworth called an abler soul, whereas like two souls that become a version of a soul that's abler, stronger than either one of them was separately. And it's like a braiding together. And I do feel like I'm kind of part Rhea, part Liz now, um, that she's kind of braided into me. And when I ask her for her advice and I feel like it's given, I don't know. Like, I don't know whether that's her spirit speaking to me or whether that's my imagination or whether it's just that I knew her so well and I learned her so well that after she died, she was downloaded. Like her wisdom was downloaded and I can access it. All I know is that it doesn't feel like what I expected. Um, you know, what I expected was a post-apocalyptic barren landscape of just total emptiness. And it hasn't felt like that. I feel her always. And I think, I think she's doing that on purpose. <laughs> we always really liked hanging out together. I mean, long before we were lovers, it was like, we were just the person the other person most wanted to hang out with. And and I sense that she still likes hanging out with me. <laughs> and I definitely still like hanging out with her. Living or dead, she's still the most interesting person I know. What about her, looking back, do you remember most fondly? God, she was so awesome. She was so awesome. I mean, she was so powerful. She was definitely the the strongest person in any room that she ever walked into. So there was just something so magnetizing about that. She was so vivid and and charismatic. And um, she could just handle everything, you know. Um, and she was so honest and blunt and direct with people. I just remember sitting at a table with a bunch of our friends one time and a friend of ours, my friend Kat, goes, uh, hey, Rhea, what are you doing this weekend? Are you, like, what are you doing? Are you Just in this very casual way, like, what are you up to? And Rhea just turns, gives her a look and goes, I'm not babysitting your fucking kids, Kat. That's what I, one thing I can tell you I'm not doing this weekend. And everybody just burst out laughing at the table because we all knew that that's actually what the question had been. And Rhea was the one who was like, 
I'm not fucking playing here. Like, I like just ask, you know, like she was so incredibly direct and she had this, um, she had this motto of life. Her motto was the truth has legs. And what she meant by that was that it's, it's always going to be the last thing standing in the room. The truth has legs. Everything else will blow up, disintegrate, turn into drama. But at the end of the day, the only thing that will just always stand is the truth. And she used to say, to people when they were in a conflict, when there was a misunderstanding, a drama, and anger, she would. Just, she had such. She loved being in the arena of truth, and she would just sit them down, and she was so solid and so so tough and strong. And she'd go, "Look, let me break it down for you." <laughs> that was her thing. Let me break it. Let me break it down for you. At the end of the day, after all the bullshit, the only thing that's going to be left standing is the truth. And since that's where we're going to end up eventually. Why don't we just fucking start with it? <laughs> so you put your truth on the table and I'll put mine and let's just do this. And she had no fear of that whatsoever. And I learned how to be so much more honest just from being with her because I saw how it cut through so much drama. You know, it was just such a direct, incredible way to be. Um, and she had enormous compassion because she had been a heroin addict and a junkie and homeless and a felon. And a, I mean, she'd just been such a failure. I'm putting that in air quotes, but her life had, had had so much pain in it before she got sober. And she had such mercy for people. Um, and it was, a, it was a tough, it was a hard mercy. It wasn't like squishy. She wasn't squishy. Um, she had incredible boundaries. She wasn't going to let you run over her in any way whatsoever. And she didn't have what the Buddhists call idiot compassion you know, which is compassion where you're like, oh, I feel sorry for you. And then the person's a Scorpio and they kill a scorpion and they kill you. Um, she didn't have that. She just recognized that she knew what it was like to be a really good person trapped in bad behavior and unable to control yourself. And she never judged anyone for where they were at that moment in their life. And what that conveyed to the world was that when Rhea was in the room, you were safe and you were safe to be who you actually were. She wasn't interested in your act, and she wasn't interested in your hustle. And and one of our friends said at her funeral, she she could look right into you and see the true self that you were trying to hide, and she loved you anyway. And and I've never met the likes of that. I've never met the likes of that. And um, she was foundational. She was epic. And and I always felt like she should have been famous um, because she was famous in every room she walked into. Um, she was a celebrity among those of us who knew her. Um, and I always tried to make her famous. I convinced her to write a memoir and I convinced her to make music because I just always wanted the spotlight. I was like, world, look at this person. And, um, and I'm so grateful that to a certain extent that worked. Um, and I love talking about her because I love keeping her famous because hmm. she should be. <laughs> you know, she sounds a lot like you. Hmm. That's a very sweet thing to say. Um, well, she is now. <laughs> that is her home address now. Like the, if you want to locate Rhea, like she does inhabit me to a certain extent. Um, but she had, we had different strengths and weaknesses that made our friendship really nourishing and healing. And I have had and have like massive amounts of creative confidence and she had huge creative talents but she didn't have a lot of creative confidence and so one of the my roles in her life was to just constantly be encouraging her to create and to put herself out there in the world and let people see that what she was making 
it was a lot scarier for her um, than it was for me. And that part was really easy for me. And she had this ferocious relational competence. Um, there was, you know, I'm terrified of conflict. <laughs> you know, I hate it. And she, she would just, she was a fucking gladiator, man. She'd just be like, you know, she'd, she'd catch a sort of glance from someone that looked a little off and she'd be like, what? You know, what is it? What? Say it. What? I pissed you off? What'd I do? Let's do this. Like, she just always was ready to, I'd be like, wow, my God, how can you do that? It's terrifying. Like, how can you just go right in like that? And she taught me so much about being direct and, and, and honest with people and, and being able to demand the truth and being able to hear it, you know? So, um, but I love that you said this. <laughs> she seems like me. That makes me very happy. Maybe that's the compliment you were saving for the end of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't have done a better one. <laughs> that's as good of a compliment as I'm going to give. <laughs> I have one last thing for us. Um, it is another Jack Gilbert poem. I'm really a one-trick pony here, as you're finding out. I was going to read it, and then I, I'm, I'm reading it over here, and I think maybe you should read it. Which one is it? I'm going to send it to you right here in the in the Zoom chat. Oh, in the Zoom chat. I'm going to send it to you because people are tired of my voice at this point. I doubt that. Uh, I don't know this poem. Okay, let's do it. It is difficult to speak of the night, Jack Gilbert. It is difficult to speak of the night. It is the other time, not an absence of day, but where there are no flowers to turn away into. There is only this dark and the familiar place of my body and the voices calling out of me for love. This is not the night of the young, their simple midnight of fear, nor the later place to employ. This dark is a major nation. I turn to it at 40 and find the night in flood, find the dark deployed in process, clotted in parts, in parts flowing with lights, the voices still keen of the divorce we are born into, but they are farther off and do not interest me. I am 40 and it is different. Suddenly in mid-passage, I come into myself. I leaf gigantically. An empire yields unexpectedly. Cities, summer forests. Satrapies? What is that word? Satrapies. What does it mean? Trust me, I Googled it before doing this because I was like, she's going to know what satrapies is. And if no, I don't, I'm not. If I don't know, then she's going to be like. <laughs> we interrupt this Jack. Gilbert poem to discuss satrapies. What does it mean? And I bet other people won't know what it means either. Well, some people will because they're show-offs. <laughs> so, um, satrapies, as the head of the administration of his province, the satrap collected taxes and was the supreme judicial authority. So I guess they're wow. administrators. <laughs> it's like a mandarin. It's like a, a some provincial like outpost. That's so cool. Okay. Thank you, Jack Gilbert. Okay, I'll do that beautiful line again. I suddenly in mid passage I come into myself. I leaf gigantically. An empire yields unexpectedly. Cities, summer forests, satrapies, horses, a solitude, an enormity. Thank God. Oh, 
God, I love him. I read that and I thought that's about where you must be at right now. That's it. Only it's 50, not 40. I wasn't going to make that correction. <laughs> that's okay. I'm delighted to be 50. Um, it's so wonderful. And not to just continue to throw Jack Gilbert poems around, but it reminds me of another one of his that I've been feeling a lot lately, which is about, he spent a lot of time in solitude. Um, and he he went to great lengths to be very alone. Um, I've been thinking about him a lot in, in this time of isolation. He went to Greece several times and like lived for years in a shepherd's hut on the top of a hill all by himself. And there's this one poem um, where he's arguing with God because God is saying to him, he's in his shepherd's hut and he's making his dinner and he's having a fish and he's cutting the tomatoes and he's all by himself. And, and God's saying, why are you like this? <laughs> like, <laughs> I, gave you, I gave you the city of Florence that you could be in and, and you want to be here in this little hut by yourself. And the whole time Jack keeps cutting his vegetables and preparing his meal alone. And God says, I gave you women and instead you chose this. And like the whole world could be yours. You could have had fame. And Jack Gilbert really could have had fame as a, as a, as a poet, but he didn't care for you. It's not that he didn't, he just didn't care about it. He just wanted to be alone. And, um, and so the, the interrogation continues from the Lord. And the last line of it is, why are you so stubborn. That's what it is. God says, why do you just want to be by yourself and not want to be engaging with the world? Why are you so stubborn? And Jack Gilbert arranges his beautiful meal for one on his plate in the late dying light of this Greek island. And he says to God, not stubborn, just greedy. <laughs> just greedy. And I felt that way. I went to India this year and I spent 17 days alone working on a project. And at the end of it, I didn't want to come out. And I thought, I am getting greedy. I'm <laughs> getting greedy. The way Jack Gilbert was greedy, greedy for solitude, greedy for silence and greedy for that intimate, intimate experience of quiet life. Well, I'll say as someone on the other side of this, I'm certainly glad you were greedy because it made you the person you are. And I haven't articulated it to you. This was actually the final compliment. <laughs> Ooh, here it comes. <laughs> this show started four years ago. And there are many people who inspired it, who made it possible. Some of them I knew many of whom I did not. And it was uh, a few passages in Big Magic that made me want to do this and that forced me to continue doing this when I no longer wanted to because you don't do something 160 times and not go a little bit crazy. And... Uh, Without that book, without you, without your greed, however it manifested, you and I wouldn't be here right now and this thing would not exist. And that's not hyperbole. It's just true. That makes me enormously happy. 
I love that shit. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And and if there's one thing that I you don't you don't know, I, you can't know. We can't know what our purpose is. And I've gave, given up long ago trying to figure that out. Um, and I don't really care anymore as much as I used to care. But like, if I got to choose what it is, it would be to be a walking permission slip. <laughs> um, <laughs> and and so when I hear stuff like that, um, it makes me really really happy. It satisfies a part of me that wants to give people permission to do what they want and to make what they want to make and um, to live according to their own nature and to do interesting stuff and to be greedy for their own experiences. So that makes me really happy, Sam. Thank you. I think you are giving uh, more permission to more people than you even know. Mm, Thanks. (laughs) I hope it takes all of that. Uh, Elizabeth Gilbert, thank you so much. Thank you, my dear. And that's our show. Special thanks to this week's sponsor, Thrive Psychology Group. If you'd like to learn more about what they do, you can visit their site at mythrivepsychology.com. I'd also like to give a special thanks to the team at Random House and, of course, Elizabeth Gilbert. Her latest book, City of Girls, is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Apple Books, wherever you do your shopping. To learn more about Liz, be sure to visit our show notes at www.talkeasypod.com. There you'll find our back catalog of all 160 plus episodes, including talks with Gloria Steinem, Naomi Klein, Noam Chomsky, Beto O'Rourke, Laura Dern, Malcolm Gladwell, Werner Herzog, Edward Norton, Morgan Parker. There's a lot of really wonderful people that have come on this podcast. And if you're new to the show because of Liz Gilbert, I think you'll enjoy some of those episodes. A little bit of housekeeping. I'd like to thank Claire Dewar for making a contribution to this podcast. If you're able to help us out, you can visit our site at talkeasypod.com slash donate. If you can't make a financial contribution, especially in this difficult moment, the best way to help us out is to send this show along. A Sunday send-along, as it were. Share it with a friend, a family member, online, with your roommate who you're probably sick of at this point. I mean, just think of that roommate. You're probably looking at them right now. You probably have nothing new to talk about at this point in the quarantine. So why don't you send this show along and then you can talk about how wonderful Elizabeth Gilbert is. (laughs) Uh, You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. You can find this show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you do your listening. And if you'd like to drop us a line, you can do so at talkeasypod at gmail.com. And as always, this show would not be possible without our incredible team. Our executive producer is Chinixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Nikki Spina. Illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Graphics by Ian Jones. Our social media is by Deja Washington. Our music is by Dylan Peck and Jin Sang. 
Our editors are Andre Lin and Kat Owen. Our engineer is Tim Moore. And finally, the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next Sunday with Roxanne Gay. Until then, have a safe week, everyone. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.